0: we good? We're getting the thumbs up from the boss in the back. It's always a good sign. Hey, last night, we had a great night, great night here last night. Uh, In fact, uh, I think coming out of last night and some of the conversations after last night's events, uh, we're looking at doing this on a regular basis, on an annual basis. And uh, last night, um, a whole bunch of the uh, the uh, homeschool kids, that older group, uh, I would say... Oh, somebody help. Um, where'd my wife go? Uh, there she is. The older group, like high schoolers, aren't they high schoolers? Mostly, junior high, there's kind of a whole group of them. Blend. Yeah, thank you, David. Somebody's got to answer me. Um, they put on a an appreciation dinner and then a program for local veterans. And uh, the dinner was just for the vets and their families, and then the, the program itself was for everybody. And uh, it was a wonderful evening. Um, we had multiple people speak. Um, uh, all of the kids in that part of that uh, program had some component to it, uh, whether they were up front speaking or in the back doing stuff, running the computer, running the electronics, they videotaped it. They, they did all the decorating. They did all the serving in the dinner. Uh, they invited, we had a few uh, special guest speakers. The Cloninger spoke of their experiences in the Air Force. Uh, Dave and Kelly right here in the middle. And then uh, Dennis, Allwine one, uh, spoke and um, <clears throat> gave, what I told him was, that was probably one of the best sermons I'd heard him give. And, uh, and he said it was cut and paste, but you could not tell that it was cut and paste. It was really good and uh, kind of a blend of our faith in Christ and our freedoms that we have in this country uh, as a constitutional republic. I'll make sure I get that uh, right. I said one time democracy and, oh, quite a while ago and, and Dennis came up and said, uh, can I remind you that we're not a democracy? And I knew that, but for whatever reason that was the word that stuck in my mind. Anyway, uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful evening. In fact, I want to start this morning because I think one of the quotes that Dennis had last night was really fitting for where we're going to go in this next sermon series. And so, Haley, if you'll put that up there, I'll just step out here and look at it with you guys. And uh, Thomas Paine, one of our founding fathers, says, What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is uh, dearness only that gives everything its value. Uh, I talked about last uh, week in the sermon, what is it that God values? Here's a great quote about that. It says, Heaven knows how good uh, to put up a proper price upon its goods. And it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article, now talking about our Constitution, uh, so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. I thought that was a great quote. Uh, Indeed, I think we see in our culture that our freedoms are not uh, as highly rated, maybe, as they've been in the past. I would say that'd be fair to say. Uh, I think that a lot of times, even in Christianity, we don't have the high-value system uh, that uh, God calls us to have. So it's kind of a great quote, I think, that that kind of blends both between our faith and also our personal freedoms. Um, If you notice, something was missing last week in... As I got up to speak, I purposely didn't talk much about politics or the election. I'm not opposed to doing that. Um, and I know that there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on today when it comes to Washington State. There's going to be a press conference. I was texted last night about this 11 a.m. press conference where the governor will is going to dole out some more new mandates. And my reply was, Maybe a little sarcastic, but I said, so he's not going to be in church, huh? <laughs> right? So he's not going to be in church, but it's important to dole out, you know, these measures. Um, and I was asked about, you know, in that same conversation, you know, kind of what our response is going to be. And, and uh, I just simply said, uh, in no uncertain terms, I don't believe that we're going to do anything different than what we're doing right now. And uh, I will restress stress what we've stressed all along, is, is that this whole thing is really a matter of, of uh, personal responsibility as much as anything. And that when personal responsibility gets put down low as a priority, and, and everything is shoved uh, from the top down governmentally, and that that's, you know, what it all becomes, we're missing a component We're missing a component as a society. We're missing a component as Christ followers. Uh, And so uh, we really believe uh, that it's a a matter of getting past this is actually first and foremost a matter of prayer. One of the things that's been missing through this whole whole debacle, this whole almost a year now or eight, nine months, is um, there's not been the mass call to prayer, to fasting, to seeking God on a wide scale. There's been bits and pieces. Uh, there's been some of the good, you know, Christian leaders that have called out for that, and, and there's been some great things that have happened. But on a wide scale, we see this huge gulf of, of perspective between uh, those who would follow God, those who would seek Christ, those who would uh, obey Him, those who put their trust and faith in Him, and those who put their faith uh, and trust in what... The government can do. And so uh, that's kind of it in a nutshell. If you have more questions, uh, I really didn't even plan on talking about this, but um, it seems to be this social fascination. And uh, I'm really calling us, I think that we're called to have uh, a different focus, really. Uh, And you ever wonder what heaven's focus is? You ever wonder what heaven gets fascinated about? That's one of the questions that I Uh, had Haley put on the board, like, what is it that heaven... I asked last week, what is it that heaven puts... What is it that God raises up as a high value? What is it that God sees as really, really valuable? And we talked about Luke 15 and and, uh, the lost uh, lamb, the lost coin, and the lost son. And uh, Jesus concluded all of those parables with celebration. And we naturally celebrate the things that we're fascinated with, right? Don't we? Like last night, we honor, uh, we, we um, esteem our veterans and their sacrifice. And so we celebrate, we celebrate them for what they've done. Heaven's the same way. Heaven celebrates the things that it's fascinated with. It celebrates the things that it sees as a high value There are things that God and the angels of heaven have as a priority. The Bible talks a lot about it. Actually, not just a priority, but it's a passion or a longing, a craving and a desire. In fact, today's passage that we're going to look into, the, uh, the last phrase of the verses that we're going to look out into, say they say this, they say, the things which angels desire to look into. So if you can just envision with me for a minute Close your eyes, stare at the ceiling, stare at the carpet, drink a cup of coffee, whatever. But envision with me, all of angels' heavens kind of staring down with a desire to see what's going to happen next. Where is this thing going? Actually, the word in that passage, the passage we're going to look at today, uh, it's not just a desire, but it's really, it's the same Greek word, oddly enough, for the word lust. Or covet, which we think, and rightfully so, can be really bad terms. But it's this intense focus on what's happening next. It's this intense focus on, on seeing where this plan of God's is going to go. And it's a crazy to think that heaven's angels... Are lusting, if I can say that in a good way, over the details of our faith. You ever think about that? That the angels of heaven desire to, to look into, to examine, to watch the details of your faith being played out through the course of your life. That's kind of a crazy thought all, all by itself. So we're starting the new, this new series today as we... We're going to start into the book of 1 Peter. And I call this series Crazy Faith and Crazy Grace. Why did I choose that series title? I don't know. It just kind of came to me uh, a while back. But if you really think about the whole storyline of the Bible from a human perspective, it's really almost unbelievable. Like every time, if you, if you just started in Genesis 1 and read all the way through, and every time that God's people got up against a wall of some sorts, it's like, ah, oh, this is not going to work. No way! No way is this going to work. What are you talking about, Noah? You've been building this goofy thing. I don't even think they had a word for it, hardly. But, but it had never rained. Why are you building this? It, no way! It's unbelievable! until the rain started to fall. Then all of a sudden it became a possibility. (laughs) Then it became a threat, and a danger. Right? Abraham and Sarah, we talked about them a fair amount. Elderly, beyond the age of having kids. No way is it possible that these two are going to have kids. They didn't believe it at first. But that was God's promise. So God makes it possible. God makes it real. Children of Israel, year, several years ago we preached through the book of Exodus, and we see time and time and time again where God's people, where the, the, the Hebrew children, as they're called, the Hebrew people come up against an impossible situation with no possible human answer, and God makes it possible. It's completely crazy if you read it in that way and in that light. From a human perspective, it seems unbelievable that one man would bring salvation to all of humanity by suffering. That sounds crazy to me. You would think that, you would think that if somebody was going to come and save this group, just us in the room, well, we'll include Dave sitting in the foyer, is that all right to throw you in, Dave? You want to be in the group? Yes. All right, thumbs up. Don't tell him, but that's my way of wondering if he was really listening. Ah. Uh, anyway, if you're going to save this group, and somebody was going to come in and save this group from some mortal danger, you wouldn't think that they would do it necessarily by suffering. You'd think that they would do it by great execution of an awesome plan, of... of a rescue, right, and that uh, everybody gets out alive, that everybody's safe and secure, off to a safe spot. But you wouldn't necessarily think that that would happen through suffering. See, uh, one of the podcasts I listened to, one of the guys says, if you really think about all the great movies that come out of Hollywood, they're really, in their essence, they're a reflection of Christ, Because all the great movies uh, uh, have that element of suffering. They have that element of sacrifice. But from a human perspective, we wouldn't think so. So it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy that Jesus' act of kindness towards us is an offer of new hope, of new identity, and a new family. That's really kind of a three-piece outline of the first Peter and it seems kind of crazy. We're going to dive into 1 Peter, just give you a little bit of an outline as we get going. That uh, uh, 1 Peter, of course, obviously written by the Apostle Peter. He recognizes, he puts that out there and, uh, from the get-go in 1 Peter 1. Um, the book was written about A.D. 64. So Peter addresses, uh, his address starts out with a basic greeting. Uh, but not, but from a not so basic Christ follower, I love Peter uh, throughout the Gospels, throughout the Book of Acts, of course through these general epistles, First and Second Peter. Uh, he's the guy that walked on water and then turned around and sank in the water, right? He's the guy that proclaimed Jesus as the Christ one minute, but was called Satan by Jesus the next. Was rebuked. Peter's the guy that said he would never deny Jesus. Before daylight, he had denied Jesus three times. Peter's the guy that sank as low as a person could after losing his Lord. Yet he was the one specifically that Jesus picked out to restore after that denial. So you see this back and forth with Peter. This back and forth with Peter throughout the Gospels. And my favorite part of the story that includes Peter is actually not so much in the Gospels. And I wasn't going to go there, but I just want to bring out just one little piece of it. It's actually in Acts chapter 2. Peter's first opportunity to say something after his uh, restoration by Christ. Now, one thing I want to say is uh, there is, I believe, kind of a misunderstanding about Peter going into this that he was uneducated, that he, uh, you know, I think he was kind of that rash, you know, compulsive type of personality for sure, but that he, the idea that, uh, that he was uneducated. The uh, biblical scholars believe that Peter actually lived about, you know, a short walk from the synagogue. And I think that this passage in Acts chapter 2, where Peter starts talking, reflects how much Peter really did know about the Bible, about the Torah, about the Old Testament. And so he starts in, he starts in in 2 verse 14, and I'll just read just a little, I'll just read some snippets out of it. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice. This is in uh, uh, reply uh, to this idea that uh, because the apostles were speaking in tongues and at Pentecost there, that somehow they were drunk And he's raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words. Sounds like a man full of conviction to me. Verse 15 says, For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. This quote out of Joel 2 uh, is really what seals in my mind the fact that Peter knew the word of God. And this, uh, this was his first step, really, onto the limelight and stage, of proclaiming God's word. So Joel too goes on to say, one of the minor prophets, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass, and that gives me chills right there. I could see why through the rest of this sermon that Peter just kept getting amped up. Like, I believe, this is just my own personal thoughts I wouldn't say it's necessarily biblical. But I think at this point, Peter's starting to get a pretty good adrenaline load talking to these folks, right? As he's looking forward to seeing what God's day is going to bring. Verse 21, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. That was his life's message. That was his life's goal. That's why he was martyred for Jesus to give that message to the people around him. That's why his wife was martyred for Jesus the day before he was. That's why Peter, in humility, said, if you're going to crucify me, turn me upside down. I'm not even worthy to be crucified like Jesus was. All because of this message. That all who call on the name of the Lord are going to be saved. He went on to quote uh, uh, from the Psalms. He went on to uh, uh, continue to uh, explain who Jesus was. He says in verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He said, you want to know what's going on here at Pentecost? I'll tell you what's going on here at Pentecost. And he just filleted him with this awesome sermon and then said, this is the guy that you killed. This is the guy that sacrificed himself so that people could be saved. Seems almost crazy to me. Verse 37 says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall... We do. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what was going on. They had received, the apostles had received the Holy Spirit. And there were some awesome things that were going on in that day, for sure. But it's not just like, you know, winning the lotto It's a response to a call to repent. It's a response to a call to to, uh, see our sin as it really is and then confess it as such in repentance and receive that free gift of salvation. See, Peter... um, I think in his early years of, through the three years of following Christ that uh, you see this in the Gospels, you know, don't you? You guys really see kind of this back-and-forth Peter that seems like, he seems like really inconsistent in a lot of ways. I read those, some of those back-and-forth inconsistencies. I was thinking it was like this. <clears throat> I heard a football coach use this analogy, so I'll use it with Peter. That Peter was kind of like a woodpecker in a petrified forest. He was working hard and looking for opportunities. Do you guys get that? Like, he was working really hard, but it, it didn't seem like it always came together for him in a way that maybe he thought. So the next thing you know, he's getting rebuked. Or the next thing you know, he's fallen in the water. Or the next thing you know, he's, he's doubting that, that Jesus can actually provide uh, an abundance of fish. But he's, all right, whatever, you know. And so he's working hard, he throws his nets on the other side, and Jesus says, pull them up. And they're full, they had been out all night fishing, uh, one account says. You know, and nothing, nothing. That's why I call it fishing and not catching. Jesus isn't into fishing. Jesus is into catching. Peter was into fishing, and it didn't pay off a lot of times so much for him. But I think once you get to this passage in the book of Acts, once you see Peter restored in his relationship to the resurrected Lord, and as he walks forward, as he walks forward, it's fair to say this, that he too was a changed man. He was a changed guy. So three decades later, three decades later, he writes this book, First Peter. So everybody turn there, First Peter. Of course, First Peter 1, it's, he self-identifies himself as the author. Actually, he had a fellow named Silvanus take down the, uh, do the notation. But he dictated this letter to Silvanus. And he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's very common in those days as you write a letter. Uh, if I was writing a letter to, to Tim back here, I would say, dear Tim. But in those days, you identify who you are first, not who you're writing the letter to. So he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, in Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification in the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied. See, Peter's desire <clears throat> in this general epistle, epistle was to encourage all the Christians all over this various regions of Asia. Actually, this, uh, this area that we're talking about, I should have brought a map up. If you think of the country of Turkey in its, in its you know, current form, its current state, these were different regions all over the current country of Turkey. Uh, some to the north, some to the south, some in the middle. But he addresses these Christians in these areas as pilgrims. Uh, we're running up pretty quick on Thanksgiving. And so when we think of pilgrim, what do you think of? You think of these, you know, stuff shirts, black coats, white, funny-looking cowboy hat, you know. Eh, It's not really a cowboy hat, but it's kind of like a cowboy hat, this big, tall, you know, thing, black brim, you know, buckled shoes. That's what our picture of a pilgrim is. But the reality of who a pilgrim is, a pilgrim is somebody that's on the move, from where they were, and looking for a place to land. That's what a pilgrim is. You know, you hear in the old westerns, you know, howdy pilgrim. Uh, that's somebody that's on the go. Somebody that's looking for a permanent home. And it's a fitting description for Christ's followers. As Tim's been preaching, uh, has been preaching, or got through a series on the kingdom of God and the reality that we are kingdom men and women, uh, we're just passing through this life. This world. It's not permanent. It's not fixed hard as a reality of eternity for us. We're passing through. We get a short stay right here for actually a short number of years, right? I'm pushing on the 50 door pretty hard. And uh, it seems like just like two weeks ago, I was Emmett's age sitting in the second row with a funny smile, right? I'm talking about me, not Emmett. Don't look at Emmett. He's a great kid. But it just seems like it, anybody that's like close to my age or older knows that time goes super fast. And when you're a kid, it seems like it goes super slow, regardless of what our perspective is on time. The reality from a biblical perspective is, is that we're just pilgrims. Like this is going to be over, over quick. In the expanse of time. So pilgrims, he calls them pilgrims. Notice the description that Peter puts on these Christ followers. And there's some key, there's three key things that we can pull out of this passage. I will continue to try to move quick here. One is he calls them, he uses the word elect. Elect according to the Father's foreknowledge. If you're a Christ follower, God chose you according to his wisdom. Do we get that? Do you understand that? Do we live in that reality? God chose you, Christ follower, according to his wisdom. I think there's a, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about this, that, it's, that our real thinking is more in the area of that God's up there, you know, rolling the old bingo wheel, the old basket around, Right? And he pulls out, oh, number 5,387. Who is that? What's, his, what's her name? What's his, who, oh, that's the person. That it's this random chance, you know, uh, 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 or like a, maybe you younger people don't remember this, but when Washington first came out with the, uh, the lotto, they had this uh, goofy machine that was full of all these ping pong balls with numbers on them. And they flipped a valve. Remember that? The little ping pong balls would pop up into each tube. Uh, it's not like that. It's not random in any sort of a way. God chooses according to his wisdom. So elect according to the foreknowledge of God. In sanctification of the Spirit. Another big... Bible word that simply means to be set apart. Sanctification means to be set apart. So we're set apart of the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit's interaction throughout the course of our lives, just like Peter, that interaction changes us. It changes us. So we say here from time to time that, that if you're a Christ follower, you shouldn't be still stuck in the same seat that you were in 20, 30 years ago. That there should be some motion to your faith. That there should be some change of your character. That God's imprint on your life should have a visible, tangible effect on your life. So you're not the same, but you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. But I'm not the same person I was at 19. I'll guarantee you that. Right? So there's there's a change. There's an effect. There's that setting apart is what it is. The Holy Spirit's job. He's the helper, the comforter, the guide, the teacher. He points all things to Christ. Convicting of of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. All of these things should change us. That's the Holy Spirit's job. It's to not leave you how you were, but change you into who God wants you to be. In sanctification of the spirit and then for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus we're saved or you can put it this way recreated reborn spiritually in the likeness of Christ to follow and we follow and we learn by imitation get that we learn primarily babies learn by imitating right So if mom's got the baby on the counter, saying, Mama, can you say Mama, please? And the baby's in infinite wisdom from heaven says, Dada. (laughs) Everybody's had this experience, right? No, say Mama. Say Mama. Dada. Back to bed, right? I'm just kidding. But we learn, we learn primarily, and, and from the very beginning, we learn through imitation. Notice (laughs) Peter. Excuse me. Notice that Peter's teaching. Oh, this is a tongue twister. (laughs) Dada. Can we go back to the basics? Thank you. Notice that Peter's teaching is consistent with the rest of the apostles' teaching. This is a great aspect of the word of God that there is 100% consistency from a variety of perspectives. Notice his consistency. In how he writes, I don't believe that this a list of three that he calls the people elect, that he talks about sanctification, that he talks about obedience, I don't believe that that is randomly placed there in any sort of a way. And here's the reason I believe that: is because Peter and the rest of the apostles, the rest of the biblical writers, they talk about our position in Christ before our performance. They talk about who you are before they talk about what you're going to do. And that's critical, critical to our understanding that we follow that, that we understand that, that we believe that. Otherwise, we're going to get caught in this performance trap. That if I do more, God's going to love me more. And God can't love you any more than He loves you right now. That's the reality of what the Word says. But we, ca- we get caught in this performance trap. So if I, if I just do more, if I just, you know, paddle faster, if I ride the bike harder in life, if I, if I do more and if, I, if I'm involved in more, and we should be involved in ministry. Everyone. Nobody's called to ride the bench. Not in the Christ church. Right? So we are called to do so. But it's not a calling to get a position We perform, if you will, if I can say that word, I really don't like that word, but it's just the one that came to my mind. We walk out in obedience because of our position in Christ. We're already in that position as a Christ follower. And Peter gives us great consistency with the rest of the Apostle Paul and James and all of the New Testament writers specifically, that it's our position comes first. Before our performance, we're chosen to be set apart, but we're also chosen to respond in obedience. Another way to communicate it, and I like this actually probably better than the first, is that we're rescued in order to respond and react. That Jesus offers us a rescue away from our own sin, what's going to lead us to hell, frankly, honestly. He offers us a rescue. And he offers us that rescue that we would respond and then react. Let's look deeper into these dynamics of that rescue. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Ready to be, re- be revealed in the last time. Peter is laying a... He, he's, he's building, if you will, a conversational house. In chapter 1, in this part of chapter 1, he's really, he's really laying the, the concrete foundation of these people's faith, reminding them of these are the truths, these are the the basics of your salvation, of my salvation, of our salvation. These are the basics that we have to know, that we have to have nailed down, that we have to understand. So I put down these things, four rescue dynamics out of this passage. One is we're saved to a, not a dead hope, but a living hope. Because of the resurrection of Jesus. See, there's lots of uh, dead, still in the ground religious leaders from all the centuries up until today. They're still there, right? Jesus is not still there. So we're saved to a living hope. It has life, it's active, it's moving. And only Jesus could pull this off because of his resurrection. The fourth, uh, the second rescue dynamic is that we're saved to an inheritance. Now that inheritance is described in these ways. An inheritance that's incorruptible. Incorruptible, undefiled, it won't fade and it's reserved in heaven. And Peter reminds us that we don't have to work hard to keep it because it's kept by God's power it's kept by God's power through faith for salvation to be revealed in the last time is the fourth dynamic so all the unknowns will be known someday all the unknowns and there's a lot of unknowns we get it that's why it's called faith and not sight right if we could see all that God is doing in our lives if we could see into tomorrow and the next day and next week and next month and what all of it would be great wouldn't it be easy to plan like all of you kind of type a personalities are thinking hey this is a really cool idea why doesn't god do this for me why doesn't he just lay out the whole calendar of what every day is going to consist of the good the bad and the ugly the awesome things the tough things why does not He just lay it all up on the wall so we can see it because if we could see it it would be by sight It wouldn't be by faith. Right? And we would start looking and we would start planning and we would say, wow, you know, November 22nd, it's going to be a bad day, Dennis. We should just stay in bed that day. Amen? Not amen. We got to walk that day by faith. Right? We don't know what it's going to be. We got to walk that day by faith. That's in God's area. That's only in, for, for God to know and for us to find out. That's why it's called faith. But it's all going to be revealed in the last time. The dynamics of your rescue, of my rescue, all those unknowns will be known someday when sight will replace faith as the norm. That's a kingdom dynamic. That's a reality of heaven where sight where our sight will replace our faith because we will be there in person as a reality forever. Uh, A friend of mine has this. uh, We were talking uh, years ago. How did he put that? Oh, yeah. He said, I wonder if in heaven you will be able to hear color and see sound. We had been worshiping maybe a little too long (laughs) And too late at night, uh, we'd been working on some worship songs. But this friend of mine, Pat, that was one of his uh, thoughts. I wonder if in heaven we'll be able to see music, physically see it, and hear the colors. Is that what I just told you? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why that came to me. It's going to be revealed in the last day, whatever it is. And however it plays out. Peter says that these rescue dynamics are going to do something that's similar to Luke 15. These rescue dynamics that we're looking at here are going to produce a celebration in spite of the circumstances. In spite of whatever circumstances. Now, what were some of the circumstances that these Christians were facing in that day? Uh, They were under a ton of pressure. Their whole world was being pressurized by a Roman government that was increasingly bringing the heat on them to squish them out, to do away with them. They were being harassed. They were being, you know, brutalized. They were being uh, persecuted. Whatever word you want to put in there, Uh, it was not going well for them. And Peter's writing to bring some encouragement, in spite of those circumstances. And I'm hoping that uh, we can all get some encouragement as well, despite maybe the circumstances that we're in. In verse 6, he goes on to say, In this, with all this rescue, with all that God has done, with this foundation, in this you greatly rejoice, verse 6. Why would we rejoice in tough times? Why should they rejoice in the circumstances that they're in? They're not rejoicing in those circumstances specifically, but they're rejoicing in their position in Christ as Jesus has rescued them, as Peter's encouraging them to to go back and to look at the foundation of their faith. He says, "...in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials." If you've been grieved by various trials yesterday I did a sermon for a guy that I don't know I knew who he was his name is Monty Rice oh what did I say I didn't do a sermon back it up I did a funeral for a guy that I don't really know but I knew who he was and here's how I knew who he was because he lived in Chewele he lived kitty corner from my grandma or from my grandma's house in town and uh, Monty was a car junkie extraordinaire. He had more Mopar hot rods and muscle cars, uh, really, than anybody that I knew in town. And when, you, when I was a teenager in Chuela, when Monty fired up one of his race cars, you could hear that thing all over town. Even Dave could hear it with his bad hearing. He could hear Monty's, Mopar, when he'd fire that thing up and it would start to lobe and he cracked that throttle one time. All over Chula, you could hear these race cars. Now that's just a quick snippet at Almonte. I didn't really know him that well and so when his wife calls she says, I would like you to do a memorial for my husband if you would or if you know somebody that would and we want it to be really short. No pressure. <laughs> she didn't say that. I'm feeling it. How, how, how do you do a memorial? Like, quantify really short for me. An hour? Oh, no. Yeah. 45 minutes? Oh, no. A half hour? Eh. Five minutes? I mean, I didn't, I didn't really know what she was getting at. Right? As I talked with her over the course of a week or week and a half... And uh, one of the things that I felt was really beneficial, of course, I've been studying through this. I keep staring at this verse 6. One of the things that I saw with, with her and the family is they really didn't want to embrace. They were frustrated. They were angry. Uh, they, were, they were grieved. They were struggling with the loss of their dad, with their husband. They really didn't want to embrace that. They wanted to be over as quick as possible. And I said, hey, Lorraine, you guys need to grieve. It's right to grieve. It's healthy to grieve. There's good that comes out of grieving something that is lost. Don't pass over that too fast. Yes, I'll do as short a memorial as I can. But don't miss the importance of grieving somebody that's lost. Right? They're not... In her words, we're not a religious family. There's an important piece. And I think in our culture, and we've talked about this, we've talked about it for the last quite a few years, really, that when it comes to grieving, when it comes to trials and tribulations, as a we, as Christ followers must resist get these words we as Christ followers must resist the cultural our culture's method of dealing with hard things I can't say that more clear I hope I've got it clear we must resist the pattern that our culture sets out for dealing with hard things what are, are, what, how does our culture deal with hard things well we try to medicate it with booze and drugs, and porn. We try to out-eat it. We try to out-sleep it. We try to uh, out-TV it. If we just watch TV, hey, I like to zone out in front of the TV as much as anybody. I get it. We cannot use a cultural method to deal with a situation that God is intending to lead us through and allowing us to walk through. We must not. We have to look different than our culture. And so I'm kind of throwing out there, I'm kind of throwing out the gauntlet a little bit for us as a church to reconsider and to push back against the temptation in these areas because we're all tempted in many ways, the Bible says. So we all have that spot we like to go to when something hard happens. I like to just go get my tractor and forget it doesn't exist. I can't always do that. I do need to get in the tractor to do some work to make some money. I get that. But it can't be an escape. We like to take all kinds of escape routes away from the things that are hard that God is allowing us to walk through these various trials that we need to and it's good sometimes to grieve through because that grief presses us into comfort and God wants to be our comfort. Amen. You guys with me? Everybody there? So you've been grieved by various trials, and the genuine, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that perishes, though it's tested by fire, I'm in verse 7 if you're wondering, may be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Peter is pivoting here in the text to encourage these Christ followers with another kingdom dynamic, that suffering, that trials, that tribulations, any hard thing that Jesus is going to allow us to go through and take us through, Any hard thing that the Holy Spirit is is teaching us things about and comforting us in comes down to this. Seems crazy. It really seems crazy to our culture that that thing for the Christian is good. Those things for the Christian are good. Why is it good? Because in God's eyes our faith... It's valuable. It's a cherished prize. The crazy, that crazy faith that Christians have in God's eyes is this. It's priceless. Do you guys get that? Do you guys understand that? Is that something fresh and new for you this morning? That your faith in Jesus, that your faith in a, in a, in a creator God is absolutely priceless to Him. That He would not trade your faith for anything. It's priceless to him. Valuable. It's cherished. But it's going to be tested. It'll be tried. As he says here in verse 7 it's going to be tested by fire, it's going to be heated up. You guys get it? A forge. Get your mind on a forge. If you remember the last series, the stronger series, I intentionally had Michaela get the, uh, the picture of hot iron being pounded on on an anvil. It was kind of the backdrop for every uh, kind of opening picture of the, each sermon that we had. Your faith, my faith, is going to be heated up for a specific reason. It's not because God is mean. That's what our culture would have you believe. That's what your, our culture would, well, God's a mean God. So He's going to punish you. He's going to tear you from limb to limb. He's coming after you. He's going to bring fire and brimstone down on you. Because He's mean. No, He's just. And He's loving. 100% of both. Perfect blend of both. Two reasons that this crazy faith that you have in Jesus is going to be tested, tried, and heated up. Because God wants to know how real it is. That's what verse 7 says that the genuineness of your faith, don't forget that part, the genuineness, how real it is, the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested. He's not talking about gold anymore. He's talking about our faith. Though it's tested may be found. On and on and on. Two reasons. God wants to know how genuine your faith is. He wants to grow you in that. And He has good things to teach us in those tough times. And Peter was encouraging this group that was under a lot of cultural pressure to stop what they were doing, to give up on their faith, to give up on their meeting, to give up on encouraging one another, to give up on what they believed was true and right and holy, to give up on on, uh, all that Jesus was recreating them to be. Culture wants them to give it all up And as Tim said a couple weeks ago, give their allegiance to Caesar. Give their allegiance to the emperor. Bow the knee to the cultural king, who happened to kind of rotate every few years because they were so insane and so crazy, so wicked and ungodly, that they just kind of kept taking one another out and murder, and hate, and all kinds of evil. So there's just kind of this rotation, so to speak. That's what our culture wants us to do. That's what the enemy of your souls, the devil, would want you to do. Back out on the faith that you have in Christ, and embrace the culture's idea of faith which currently is not much more than a uh, meme on social media or a cutesy little plaque that hangs at Walmart with no substance. That's where our culture is at. No. Peter says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, your faith is going to be cooked to see how good it is, to see how real it is. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for that? Are you ready for your faith? Am I ready for that? Am I ready for some pushback? Am I ready for my faith to be put out on the line in that way? I'm ready for that. We have to be ready for that. It's not that God doesn't know how genuine our faith is. I believe it's a revelation for us from Him. Here's where you're really at, Mark. I'm taking you through this tough thing. I'm bringing you through this fire, not because I don't know how it's going to turn out, because I want you to know where you really are. I've said this for a lot of years. When people are under the gun, I've seen it. I've seen it. Uh, I'm sure Dave's seen it as he spoke last night about being a, you know, uh, like EMT. Oh, remind me of the right term combat medic, that people that are stressed out in, in, in tough situations, they revert to what they truly, truly believe in their heart and in their mind. Isn't that true? So whatever that thing is, whatever that place is that, that, that we find when we're pressed in a trial, we will be at our base belief of what we believe is absolutely true. And that can be scary when we're faced with it. We're like, man, I'm struggling here. I'm struggling. My, My faith is not really that strong. Or it's misplaced. It's a hard place to be to. The great news is, is that we have the Holy Spirit working inside of us in the process of being set apart and built up, recreated in the image of Christ to take us where we are the reality of where we really are in a tough time and take us to where God wants us to be. That's crazy! That's absolutely insane if you think about it from a human perspective but from God's perspective that's the reality of what He's doing in our lives. The second reason that the genuineness of our faith is being tested is to simply produce praise, honor, and glory. You look there in verse 7. Produce praise, honor, and glory. Glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that can be kind of taken two ways. I think maybe. (laughs) That's kind of an oxymoron if you really think about it. I think maybe. I'm wondering sometimes if that means the revelation of who Jesus is in the moment of trial is going to produce praise. Or does it mean the second coming of Jesus that uh, you know we're kind of could happen at any second really uh, as we wait here? It would be great to leave from here to go straight through the roof. Anybody agree with that? Wouldn't be rapture would be kind of nice at this point, to, whoosh, right through the sheetrock? I've been through sheetrock; it didn't really go too well that time. I've fallen through sheetrock. Uh, I'm looking for the up, the up. Uh, Escalator, not the down escalator. I got right off track. The fact that our faith, your faith, my faith, that Christ followers' faith is going to be tested and tried and heated up to determine its genuineness, but also to produce praise and honor and glory. We worship. We worship with this in mind. It's like it's not about performance. The worship part of our service, the singing—we'll put it this way—it's all kind of worship, really. If you think about it, I get that. I don't want to slice, you know, thin straws. The music portion of the Sunday praise, honor, giving glory to God. If you uh, consider this, in that moment of singing, in that moment of whether it's an old hymn with this rich theology and message, whether it's a modern you know, worship song, that has a nice flow to it. It, it, Style's not an issue, just so you know. Are we in that point of reflection, in that spot of reflection, where we're seeing, wow, God, look what you have done. I, I can't believe what you've taken me through. I can't believe how you've changed me. I can't believe how you've tried and tested my faith and you... Continue to grow me to be who you want me to be. That's what really the essence of worship is for. And music gives a format and gives us an opportunity. And I long for all of us to, to in our own walk with the Lord, on a regular daily basis and on a Sunday basis, Sunday come and praise and worship, to embrace that in increasing measures. It's not about hitting the right note, you know. uh, I mean, analytically, I can think about the worship service and think of probably a dozen mistakes I made on the drums. That's not the point. Right? That's not the point. The point is, is am am I using the gifts and talents that God has blessed me with to return that to Him in sacrificial praise and honor and glory, lifting up... You know, praise to Him. Because my faith has been through some tough times. And I go back to that spot and I think about that. Man, God, you're so awesome to take me through that. It's so awesome to be on the other side of that trial. I learned so much, Jesus, when you took me through this hard time. The word goes on to say, Whom having not seen you love, verse 8, though now you do not see him, talking to Jesus, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So who we don't, who we don't see, we can love, and who we don't see, we can believe in, And who we don't now see, we celebrate. This is a dress rehearsal for eternity. I love that phrase. I love that perspective on what this life is about. This is a dress rehearsal. Let's have fun with it, right? Like, the funnest part, oftentimes, several of you guys have done weddings. I think, my experience, having uh, two kids that are married and being at many rehearsals, is that the rehearsals often less stressful and way more fun. Isn't that true? Haven't we had a lot of fun at these weddings? Uh, <laughs> I'm getting kind of a, well, maybe. I think it is. I don't know. My twisted mind says the best place to be in a wedding party is the father or the groom. You just have to <clears throat> dress up and look halfway sharp and your job is accomplished. But uh, uh, this part of life this season of life, this peace here, this part that we're called to walk in faith, as believers, as we follow Christ, we're, we're not seeing Him physically. I'll tell you what you can see physically. You can see the result. You should be able to see that result in your own life. You should be able to see that result in other people's lives. You can see that peace. Right? Uh, who we don't now see, we believe. So there's this piece that we don't see Him physically, but we believe. And who we celebrate. He's who we celebrate. Sounds like a crazy faith. But I want to close as the worship team comes on up. It sounds, from a human perspective, absolutely crazy. Like, who would want to be a part of that? But I'm here to tell you that it is worth it. It's worth it. I'm glad. I'm not the kid I was at 19. I'm glad that, that God put the brakes on where I was going and called me into a relationship with Him. I'm glad that I'm not on some of those pathways that I was on. That looking back and say, wow, that could have been really destructive. So we can have joy. It's worth it. I think in our culture, a lot of times, there's this pressure to say, just like there was in the first century, there's this cultural pressure to say, "Ah, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it? Is it really worth giving up all that time, treasure, money? Is it really worth investing in all these other people? Isn't it better to just do your own thing? Seeing in the first century, it's kind of that same message. Are you sure it's worth it? Don't you want to just like... Renounce it all. Less wouldn't it be nice to just renounce it all and not not bow to the knee to the emperor? Shaking his head no, which is the right answer. Right? No, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it as we walk out this life of faith. Let's all rise and worship the Lord.